You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Wednesday the 22nd of February, not from TW11 this morning, as you can probably tell. I am in Riyadh in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and in the media centre here ahead of the Saudi Cup 2023, the world's richest horse race, more of which later in the show, with the air conditioning unit here on a balmy day, well up into the high 20s, low 30s, competing with the um, not-so-gentle hum of some 11th-hour construction, just getting the place tipped off ahead of the big day itself. We'll be reflecting on the Grand National Waste a little bit later in the programme as well, talking about Steve Asmussen, 10,000 winners and counting for the extraordinary American trainer. Kevin Stotts picked up a ride as retained jockey to Keir Jarabchin's Ammo Racing, but the news that will knock all that off the front pages in the UK certainly is that the new whip rules have yielded some very significant results following the first meeting of the whip review panel. First off, the first disqualification. Charlotte Jones-ridden Luna Discovery has been disqualified from second place in an air bumper because Charlotte um, hit the horse 11 times with the whip, which is four over the new threshold of seven, which triggers an instant disqualification. And the other and well-previewed um, headline is that Lorcan Williams will miss the Cheltenham Festival. He's picked up an 18-day suspension, 14 days for going two over the permitted level of seven in a class one race so that is seven multiplied by the two for it being a class one or two race he's also been fined 1050 pounds and he gets another four days for the work being above shoulder height you'll remember the shoulder height issue was the very contentious one during the betting in period there are relatively few bands that have been given out for shoulder height and they're all in the the single day numbers as uh, as well uh, and, and quite a low profile jockeys in a way the, the promising apprentice Kaelin Quinn or conditional Kaelin Quinn Misha Micklewright another one for above shoulder height but the big headlines the first disqualification Lorcan Williams out of Cheltenham Kevin Brogan in the same race at Haydock an eight day ban for going one over I'm joined here in Riyadh by, by Richard Hoyles who um, gave a very passionate address to ITV viewers last week on the on the opening show uh, and this was part of what you were talking about Richard not exclusively but the response to it what can we uh, what can we take out of what's been what's been released today I think the first thing Nick is that I don't think any of us probably expected a disqualification to be featuring in this discussion this early I think that most within the BHA as well felt that this was in their own words the sort of deterrent that would never be used the sort of nuclear option was that it was there but it really wouldn't figure because no jockey would breach them to that degree. And yet we're talking about second in a bumper. I'm, in, I'm pleased with the progress that was made in it not determining the disqualification on the day. That was my greatest unease because, without going over old ground, had this occurred in, say, the Gold Cup, and one of the jockeys had gone in and had pleaded his mitigation, because if you disqualify on the day, you have to hold the inquiry there and then, because obviously mm. you can't settle bets until you do. And I come into you, Mr. Stewart, and say, Mr. L- um, I the third one I didn't connect it's just an air shot I'm just encouraging by waving and then we have to with the batting public waiting the TV audience watching on we have to disseminate whether or not those strikes made contact and we're drawing attention to the very very thing that puts us 
most uncomfortably in the public spotlight. So I was very uncomfortable with that scenario, but was led to believe that it would be the nuclear option. The fact they delayed it as part of the whip panel so it doesn't affect betting on the day, for me, is a good thing, but for others it wouldn't be. I don't think anyone would have foreseen uh, the first disqualification being for not winning, for a start. (laughs) Well, yes. Um, And also in a bumper, which raised a a bit of an eyebrow. Um, To what degree do you have sympathy with jockeys as we stand now, given everything that's gone on in the last three or four months? My sympathies with jockeys are quite great. Where I have less sympathy is the negotiating tools or the bodies they've used at the various stages of the rules. The best analogy I can give, it's been like a balloon full of water. When you've squeezed it in one direction and sorted something out, it pops out somewhere else. The forehand and backhand, the shoulder height, and even prior to that, the initial worry about the bedding in periods through the PJA. I have some sympathy with those that negotiated with the PJA initially through Tom Scudamore and PJ McDonald, taking on board what they felt were the jockey's views, only to find that they weren't. We then went from backhand to forehand position, and many senior riders said, well, that's fine, we just want to be able to use it in the forehand position. Mm-hmm. Um, but in return for that, we will get more severe penalties yes, if we exceed. Exactly. And if we talk through the minutiae, which wow. you're far, far yeah. you know, better versed with, the Lorcan Williams case of 18 days yes. um, is actually partly as a result of the increased penalties for forehand and backhand. Precisely. So under the rules that were proposed after the long drawn out whip review, which were rubber stamped initially in November by the BHA, had Lorcan Williams done exactly what he'd done at Haydock on Saturday, he would have only been won over because the jockeys asked for the number to come down from eight to seven or accepted a trade-off to come from eight to seven. So he'd have only been won over and the penalty for going one over under those proposed rules would have been three days doubled for a class one race. So he would have ended up with a six day ban and there would have been a greater element of discretion. So who knows? He may have even ended up with not much at all. Might have got a bit for shoulder height. But it would have been, I would be guessing, under half the band that he got. And I felt, and I think a lot of people felt, that that would have been more proportional to the offence that he's actually committed. What they've done now with the backhand-forehand trade-off with the BHA board is we have a, 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 a raft of penalties that are that are not rooted in proper proportionality with the rest of the rule book. That's my view. Well, I, th- I think that's fair. I think that sort of grains on the chessboard is where mathematically it falls down you know you put one grain on the first square two keep up squaring them by the time you get to I think it's something like the 62nd square you've got the harvest of the world on there because you just and the multiplier effect of increasing a penalty and then doubling it for a class one and class two is where these rules will definitely in those races give bone for contention and those races will be of course the high profile races and that is going to be the point because you do transgress by even one and you then have that multiplied through. And if it also comes in conjunction with something like time to respond, where the offence has also given a rise to greater number yeah. of days. And, and there's a lot of time to respond. In there's 20 bans being given out in this first real week of the new rules. And time to respond features perhaps more times than just about any other offence. Um, way more than above shoulder height. So let's take that example. I think, it, I think we believe it went up from two to four. Is that correct for yeah. time to respond? So under time for respond rules, let's just take that in isolation. You ride within the rules. You save your number of um, uses of the whip until the closing stages, but you get it slightly wrong and you end up with a sort of you know, rat-a-tat-tat in the view of the stewards. That means that ban would have been two days. 
and it would have been doubled under class two and class four. Now it would be four days, and that's doubled up to eight. Yeah. So it's a 100% increase on the number of days for effectively the same offence um, post and pre the forehand and backhand position. So my overall, to answer your original question, what are my sympathy of the jockeys? Mm. My sympathy is that this has been implemented that we're only now knowing the consequences just before Cheltenham and Aintree. And that is by far and away my biggest sympathy with the riders. They're being asked to implement changes to the way they've ridden for years on the build-up to the biggest races of the year. I don't have so much sympathy in their negotiating methods, if you like, mm. in terms of sending in representatives yeah. under whom they will be bound by their views. And I think the other thing we should point out is that some of the quotes that were attributed to Lorcan, and I don't know whether they're correct or not, about, well, I wouldn't have won had I not transgressed. Well, I'm, you know, I wouldn't have got a speeding ticket if the old, you know, had been 70 and you've reduced it to 60 and I'm going 65. But you do have to accept that if your representatives have agreed a new set of rules, if you ride outside those rules, you will have the, the penalties that are within them. And the, the BHA... Um, have said they wrote to Lorcan Williams at least seven times during the betting in period and he was responsible for a, a fifth of the bans for excessive force or, or potential bans for excessive force during that period. So so you're going to get two sides to that. You're going to say that is exactly what should happen. The, the greatest transgressors should get the biggest bans. We have sympathy about the change. In a class one race where it's a win at all cost and two horses going hammer and tongs. Absolutely. So, you know, so if you like, the, it's done what it should do. However... Lorcan Williams might say, well, I've been victimised right from day one about my, my style, not so much maybe in terms of number of strikes. Mm. And you'll get the, the victimisation aspect, which will undoubtedly come out from, from, from some riders who feel like down the line, when they get banned and banned and banned again, that they are being kicked on. It does seem that the, that the, the biggest bone of contention during the betting-in period has been taken into account by the, the panel, because there are so relatively few bands for above shoulder height, so they are clearly taking a much more nuanced approach to that. And now it seems that, that it is beholden on the jockeys to A, be able to count, and B, to give horses time to respond. That seems to be the key now. I don't want to pick on Charlotte Jones, because there's plenty of jockeys who've transgressed in terms of counting, but... It's kind of hard to square how how you get to 11 under any rules now. Well, it is based on what was said. You know, I mean, I don't know. I've never ridden. In the heat of battle, I think, it, particularly jumping-wise, it must be quite difficult to assess, you know, how much you've actually hit between 7 and 8. But when you get into 11, when I was asking the question about disqualification, I was told, we don't think this will ever happen. It's certainly not in a major race. Now, you know, the air bumper is not a major race, and it might just be, it might focus minds, because the point is it only happened once was the then argument. Well, that was the smart Prescott argument, wasn't it? This will happen once, and it will never happen again. Yeah. I, my, my accounting, <laughs> How are you feeling about well, that right now? If I, my accounting background suggests that you should take the, the incidence of the number of rides and how many transgressions, and even allowing for a fairly steep learning curve, you know, and I suppose that's what the rules will have to... You know, we do have to accept these rules one way or another in terms of, you know, if I negotiated practice with you, we've, we've shaken hands on it, and that's the deal. You can't keep coming back to the table and asking for the deal to be slightly flexed. However, however, the issue seems to have been that we've got ourselves into now bans being issued rather than any bedding in period just before Cheltenham and Aintree. And my worry is, as I mentioned on, on Saturday in passing, is that we are drawing attention to the very thing which is in many people's eyes, are Achilles' heel. And even though those issues from Cheltenham won't be dealt with on the day, which is helpful for the sport, we could end up with 
a discussion times five that we're having now of the number of bands post Cheltenham, which after all would potentially influence Aintree and beyond that could potentially influence Punchestown with riders who aren't used to riding under our rules who come over from Ireland and that for me could be a, a bit of a nightmare scenario. It seems that it seems that counting is the thing, though, doesn't it? it well, it, you know, this is the point we've moved. My balloon analogy right at the beginning is we started yeah. off with number of strikes and the whole whip debate. We focused in on forehand and backhand. We then focused in on shoulder height as we sort of drilled down into the minutiae, and now we're almost back to where we started with counting. Because if counting is going to be really difficult, if it is in the heat of a moment, going to be really hard for jockeys to know whether it's six, seven, eight, nine you are going to get an awful lot of bands. And let's face it, all professional sportsmen push the rules to the limit. And why Why does it seem so... This is one thing I can't get my head around, and having sat through 18 months of the, of the WIP Review Committee, I, I can't get my head around why this is so um, passionately and keenly felt in the UK relative to every other jurisdiction that has, has introduced, in many cases, particularly in France and Germany, much more swinging with regulations and much less forgiving. You saw the bans that Dottori and Luke Morris got in Germany. Yeah, France are going to do something well, similar. Kong, where I was They've gone with the whole direction of travel thing. You know, eventually they will get down to zero. Yet the whole the whole point within the Wit Review Group was that that philosophical argument had been one that it wasn't just going to chip chip the number down. So, yeah, so, you know. so let's expand on that point. I'll turn interviewer to you in a minute. You know, in terms of, um, you sat on that committee and your greatest you know, red line, if you like, was to try and avoid the reduction from number. Was that what your sort well, of... Well, my, my personal yeah, one yeah, was, so I was yeah. Say, yes. yeah, there, are terms of the, there are people course, on that committee who are total abolitionists. But, so now you find yourself in a position where that has been partly eroded and I'm sure many who were on that committee initially now might have their views very different as to where we stand now? What I'm trying to get my head round is the idea that is the idea that the BHA board and the BHA executives said, right, well if 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 you can't have the you know, a more elegant use of the whip with the backhand because it was proven scientifically that this was very difficult for jockeys, particularly ones who'd had shoulder injuries yeah. and collarbone injuries. Fair enough. Uh, my personal preference would have been simply just to remove that. Right, here are twenty recommendations. This one is now what we've decided is unworkable. Leave the other 19 as they are. And then you would have had, still had, I believe, stiffer penalties, but penalties that were in the realms of proportionality. I think I, I think that the jockeys have accepted um, a slightly crappy deal here. Yeah. Because they've gone for they've got they've they've said yeah no, don't worry leave it to us more penalties we we can we can cope with the penalties uh, just we just want to be able to use the whip now that's fine if you're someone who's brilliant at using the whip well like Brian Moore or Frankie or whoever it's probably not so fine as we've seen here if you're someone who's been and that's low, probably my, down the scale that would probably be my takeaway from this is those that have represented the riders at various stages those sort of. In more intricate detail don't seem to have been represented from Tom Scudor and P.J. McDonald at the beginning mm. about shoulder injuries not reaching back with forehand and backhand because mm -hmm. they signed up to the backhand position for the now we want to use it in the forehand position um, and then shoulder height and you know some riders finding it hard what you really needed was a body that sort of represented jockeys right the way across the piece yeah. negotiating right from the beginning and saying look some of you may have no problem with this part of it some of you will, so we need to go in and draw the line so there. All the jockeys think so differently, don't of they? Course. It's so difficult. Well, the PJA, to... you know, it's probably even less so in the last two years since Paul Struthers went, not as long as two years, but um, you just get the impression that they do not speak 
on behalf of all the riders. And within racing, they're by no means alone. And these senior riders, if, yeah. they, if they're sent as a deputation, they don't always speak for all no, the absolutely. riders. And so they sign up to something. When you go back, it's a bit like you know deciding to end the nurses' strike with a deal that as soon as you offer it to all the nurses, some of them say, well, hang on a second, I can't do that. Now, it's a bad analogy in the sense that uh, and there are nurses. there are always a few people who will cross a picket line. Well, absolutely. They, you know, you're not drawing comparisons between you know genuine strikes for pay, etc., and racing. The analogy is obviously about the fact you need to represent your members in negotiations, and that doesn't appear to have been particular. So I sense the frustration from the BHA. However, I do feel, as you say, that you all look at this in the cold light of day and say to you, you were on the whip panel, BHA, you were on the increased players, jockeys, you were here. This is where we are. Are we happy? Yeah. And I don't think anyone is. I don't think the BHA are rubbing their hands and saying, we'll teach the jockeys now, but you have to 18 days. I think they're probably looking at it and thinking, blimey, that's a big number. <laughs> and now we're committed to big numbers, and I'd be worried, and I'd be nervous. You know, and that, that's where the entry Chelton thing comes in for me, because you know, you're, you're nervous on the build-up to where the motivation to win is going to be at its greatest. I personally believe in stiffer penalties mm. rather than disqualifications. I would have the penalties observed in grade one races. That's always been my position. So if you got banned in a grade one race and you got banned for 14 days, you served those on 14 race days that had grade one races. And so as a result, the odds are you would lose the ride because that's for me is the key. From a jockey's perspective, you will stay within the rules if you feel that you will not get the ride if you lose it. Finally on this, Richard. Um, the Charlotte Jones disqualification. Now, a relatively lowish profile jockey in a in a bumper at air eleven times. Will that have a any impact on the rest of the weighing room? I think it's good. It's happened in a way because it's sort of it will sharpen mind. This is the test of mm. I think as you said. Is this is the, 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 the Prescott? Prescott the this is the Prescott. Well, test, is, this is, is the Prescott. Yes, like the, the Prescott test will only happen once, and then everyone will realise. My worry is that racing has many you know, meetings going on each day. It's a little bit of a travelling circus, if you like, in that sort of sense. And what goes on in the peripheries sometimes can escape people mm. in the heat of battle. I don't think going down to the last when you're upside someone and kicking and shoving and you're not quite sure how many you've had, you, you, Charlotte Jones will be the one that, that flicks into your mind. Maybe the numbers are, I don't know how many I've got. I put the fear of God up me. I'm not sure how many I've got left. But I do think punters and everyone else has to stop this sort of, well, you know, I wouldn't have won the race if I hadn't broken the rules. Well, you know, I can think of all sorts of other sports, Formula One, etc., where if you force somebody off the track it's not quite the same in terms of the actual outcome but if you break the rules you should expect some sort of sanction yeah unfortunately the multiplier effect of the changes to the penalties has meant those sanctions are pretty severe it could act as a wake-up call everyone could wake up the senior riders who've agreed this should say right you've got to learn to ride within the rules when you come in there the rules when you start on day one it's the cohort that have ridden that way for a while you know and maybe don't ride that often for whom it's probably going to be hard uh, and some of the younger jockeys coming through the ranks. And it, it, it has been stressed that part of Lorcan Williams' uh, penalty is a one-day course at the British Racing School or an approved organisation uh, to go with that, which was part of the original should, raft of recommendations. Maybe should, maybe should have those... Shouldn't he have, How many times did they say he was warned during the betting in period? <laughs> seven. They say seven at least. Maybe that one day at the been at the, should yeah, maybe have been yeah. part of the suspension for yeah. the betting in period. Definitely. That, you know, that would have been quite a good idea. And that's my problem is that I think if we'd all sat down in a room and said, right, you know, where's the, where's the, you know, as you would do strategically for most businesses, where's the weak points here? You, you stress test everything, don't you? Mm. You know, you, you think, where's the weak, you know, this is our idea. Where are we exposed? What's, what's going to be well, really stupid? And unfortunately, because it's been ad hoc, adding on bits 
we come across something else that you're really not comfortable. As you with. say, the balloon analogy yeah. strikes again. Yeah. And just to just to, just to put a button on this, just to remind you as to uh, uh, as to uh, how these negotiations between jockeys and the BHA board have ended up playing against them. I, I mentioned that the suspension that Lorcan Williams would have received under the originally intended penalties far less. Charlotte Jones's mount, Luna Discovery, wouldn't have been disqualified under the proposed rules because she wouldn't have gone four over because the proposal was eight and this is seven and therefore wouldn't have been a disqualification. So as a result, the nuclear option came closer because of escalation. Correct. Hmm. Rather worrying on a world theme. All right, trying to look a little beyond the obvious with the publication of the Randox Grand National Weights yesterday, welcoming in Irish-based trainer uh, Peter Fahey, who has the very popular The Big Dog, reasonably high amongst contenders this year. Uh, Peter, what's the plan? Are you definitely going to go to entry? Yeah, it is. Look, it's been the plan all year, and it, we're delayed it's worked out. Um, look, it's definitely at the moment we're, we're thinking of going there, yeah. Uh, just tell me how he's recovered from his fall last time. Quite uncharacteristic for him. Yeah, look, at it was just an unlucky fall, I suppose. They were starting to race down over the last two, but uh, he came out of it very well, and we were lucky enough, um, uh, Yogi Bryson was actually over in Ireland, and he actually gave him a, a school the other day for us, and he jumped very well. And so, what's the plan between now and, 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 and Aintree? Um, look, he's actually been plenty busy away up to it, because he's actually competing in a lot of competitive handicaps and that, so we'll, have, we'll keep him fresh. Look, at his first run of the season was a very good run. And I don't think it's an issue not running between hand. We get a gallop in school, a gallop in, into him beforehand at a race course gallop. But um, other than that, look at it, it's pretty straightforward. He's very fit at the moment just to maintain him at the, is all we have to do. Defying a mark of 160 takes a bit of doing in any race, let alone in the in the Grand National. But do you think he's fundamentally got the quality to be able to do something like that? I think he has. Look, at it. I definitely think he has. I think his last run proved it in, in a competitive grade one in Ireland he, he was he was there at the second last and going as easy as any of them um, so he definitely showed he, he had he has a bit more class than just a handicapper so I suppose going over there you don't know till you till you try it but um, I think he has all the right credentials he stays well and he, he, he'll, um, he's, he's a good jumper you know you know, he pulled off an absolute masterpiece with Zoffany Bay off a 700 day absence the other day at, at Ascot um, I'm guessing you're hoping to squeeze him into the Martin Pipe at Cheltenham aren't you? Yeah, look, we, we put him in the Martin Martin Pipe with talking to the lads. Look, at I'd say it's highly unlikely he'd get in, but um, we'll, see, we'll see as time goes on. But um, if not, we'll keep him to some of the nice competitive handicaps to put prize money. But um, look, it was a great run after being two years off the track um, in a competitive race, and he can do nothing to improve from it. All right, Peter, thanks for your time. Great, thanks very much. All right, well, here in Riyadh, such excitement ahead of the, the Grade 1 Saudi Cup this weekend. $20 million on the table. Japan had such a great Saudi Cup night last year with four winners out of the six top-level races. But this year, a proper assault, a shock and awe assault on the big one. Kate Hunter is here um, assisting, representing, looking after so many of the Japanese connections and keeping an eye on the horses based in Japan, of course, and with big experience around the globe. Um, Kate, I know you're... you're probably completely shattered but um how, how's it all gone so far for the japanese runners it's, it's going really well um all the horses are are fit and uh, ready 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 to uh make it make it make a big night of it i hope um last year was a very not necessarily a surprise but a very happy ending so based on the numbers it looks like we're ready to do it again yeah and, and as i said a proper assault on the big race this year how long has this been in the planning uh, well, 
the, the Japanese love a good invitational. Um, like you see how often they go to Hong Kong and Dubai over, over the past you know decade or so, um, and how those numbers have grown. So it, it made sense for them to start going to Dubai, uh, Saudi Arabia as well um, with all the different uh, options that they have made available on the day. And um, it, just, it fits into the Japanese schedule perfectly. So it, it works out really well for both Saudi Arabia and being able to have all these Japanese horses and for Saudi Arabia and for the, well, I guess it, it, sorry, I'm not making sense anymore, but it works out for everybody. It's a win-win situation. Just looking at the, the runners from, from Japan, Cafe Faro, Crown Pride, Geoglyph, June Light Bolt, Panther Lassa, and Van der Gaard in the, in the big race itself. Who is the most obviously credentialed of those? Well, I think across the board, the way you look at it, um, all of them have, have things about them that make them stand out. Um, Crown Pride, I think, showed that he could really handle these kinds of uh, international surfaces based on how, even though he didn't finish well, he ran well in the Kentucky Derby. Um, and trained well for it. He won the UAE Derby, so he's obviously going to be able to handle this kind of ground quite well. And he's been maturing quite well over the course of his three-year-old season last year. Um, Vindegaard trained like a beast over the Del Mar dirt when he was at, there for the Breeders' Cup, so I'm very excited that they're going to try him. And he's an 1,800-meter specialist, so throw him in there. And uh, he's, he's, he's an exciting one because he's kind of a wild card. He's only run on turf before. Um, Cafe Pharaoh is one of the best dirt horse in Japan right now. Um, it'll be his first time on this surface, so that's a big question mark. But he's a powerhouse, and if he, he looks just like his dad. Um, Geoglyph uh, was, had a very good early start to his season last year, so if he can re- return to that form that we saw you know, in the spring of uh, 2022, I think uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be right there as well. And Pantheles is going to be the one who's he's just going to go to the lead and, and, never, and everyone's just going to have to catch him. So, you know, it, that, that'll, that'll change the whole dynamic of the race. All right, that was uh, Kate Hunter there, who is um, without peer as an expert on, on Japanese racing from an international perspective. We look forward to catching up with her again later in the week. Now, if you haven't heard this already, it is time for me to tell you that if you want to go to Sandown Park on Imperial Cup Day on the 11th of March, you can do so for just a tenner exclusive offer for listeners to the Nick Luck Daily podcast if you log on to the jockeyclub.co.uk head to the Sandown Park page go to Imperial Cup Day Saturday the 11th of March and type in the promo code NL10 you will get grandstand enclosure tickets for half price just for £10 hurry while stocks last because there's only 500 of them available promo code NL10 for Imperial Cup Day at Sandown Park the jockeyclub.co.uk and you can buy a maximum of up to four tickets Well, we always like to celebrate notable landmarks here on this podcast. There is no landmark more notable than training your 10,000th winner. I'll just let that seep in for a little while. 10,000 winners as a trainer. That's what Steve Asmussen's just done. And that's more than any other trainer ever in global horse racing history. He's already broken all the records, but now he's made the milestone that he really wanted to. Michelle Yu is out here with me in Riyadh and obviously knows Steve very well. Uh, but knows him even better than some of the rest of us do because she actually worked for him for a while. Um, that's pretty momentous. What will it mean to him, do you think? Uh, everything, and, and not just to him. Steve is so selfless. It's not like this is my milestone. This is a family milestone. This is a parental milestone. Uh, I know Scott Blasey and Darren Fleming are going to be celebrating this as well. I mean, he's had such a team. There's no way that Steve could have done all that he's done 
without having a core team in place that he trusts to run his operation the way he wants it run. So I think it's going to be a big celebration across the board at, you know, every of his 25 satellite stables. And that's the thing. This isn't just somebody operating a a training Mm -hmm. stable or a training yard in in European parlance. This is someone uh, with a a major corporation spread across the the entire country. It's an extraordinary organization. It is. Uh, You know, when I worked for Steve, we were based up in Saratoga when I started, and we were on the Saratoga-Kentucky string. Um, Steve wasn't there all the time because he would literally go to each of his major operations on like a week-by-week basis. But every morning at like clockwork, he was calling. He would go through all the lists with Scott. Um, He knew all the horses, what they were doing, set up their training regimen. And while he trusted Scott to execute that, I mean, he had his hand in everything. And when he came, he knew, you know, every horse and what they were doing. It was, it was great. Yeah, his mind is amazing. He can keep across each and every horse. He can. There's a lot of big trainers like that that are good. Todd Pletcher, he's another one. He's absolutely a genius. He knows everything about every horse. Um, so seeing Steve in action and watching the way that he was able to masterfully dictate to everybody but like still have his hand in what was going on was eye-opening all right let's talk about career highlights for steve asmussen if i say steve asmussen name the first horse that comes to mind curlin <laughs> so why because he's trained many other great horses as well and you know a horse of of the caliber of gunrunner much more recently so why do why is curlin the one that springs to mind to us both so so readily i think for two reasons one is because he was obviously a really great racehorse and he didn't start out with steve but steve really developed him into being the animal that he was i think because we saw him in some contentious triple crown races those are some of the most memorable triple crown races i think in the last couple of you know decades so because of and that it was a good group of horses, it was a good group well, horses springs to mind uh obviously he was able to win the breeders cup because he came and he had world domination in the dubai world cup and then i think because the curlin has turned that corner to be such a forefront sire so it's not like oh we had this great horse we've forgotten about him we talk about curlin all the time so of course you can't talk about curlin this much and not think about the man that brought him to be who he is and uh, as far as his own personality is concerned, Michelle, to paint, a, paint a bigger picture of, uh, of Steve. Steve is quiet, but impactful when he speaks, unlike me, who's just loud and jibber-jabbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when he speaks, you want to listen. He's quite funny, um, very self-deprecating uh you know he's not like yes i'm the best and that's why this happens he's always deferring to his staff and his colleagues um and he's he's just he's great he's a family man he's got his boys obviously he's close to his parents a lot of the owners appreciate you know the family ties that he's always had and and i feel like a lot of his owners that have been with him for a long time consider him to be like family he's not that old no, he's not. Steve Asmussen. No. How long do you think he could go He could go on training for? How big could this number get? And what's the succession plan if there is one? I mean, this number could grow exponentially, right? So when he have his first winner, I think it was like 1986, if I'm not mistaken, at Rio Dosa Downs. So, I mean, it hasn't been all that long to, to get here. He does have a massive operation, which is why he's so many wins in front of everybody. But I think to Steve, he celebrates these wins, no matter if they're at Rolito Park or if they're at... Churchill Downs he's happy for all of the wins um so he could keep doing that because no matter the type of horse you send Steve he always has a place for it it seems because he has so many operations going um 
who knows how many wins he could end up with. I mean, he's got another 25 years, right, if he wants to. Well, Michelle, I asked you for one favourite Steve Aspenson horse. Obviously, we both said Curlin at the same time. Others will have been shouting other things. If you, were to, if you were to pick five from his career, what would they be? So, Curlin, obviously, on top. I think uh, Gunny has to be Gunrunner. in there. Gunrunner. I think that Gunrunner... To us mere mortals, Gunrunner. <laughs> to us friends, he's Gunny. Um, I think for, for him, I put him over Rachel Alexandra, just because I think Rachel was such a sensational horse that she didn't really need any finesse or any tweaking. Anyone could have trained her to be that good. So uh, I put her third. And then Untappable, certainly for Steve. And then number five might be kind of surprising. I loved Kodiak Cowboy. And I worked uh, with Steve when we had him. And he was like my gentle giant buddy. So he might not have been the most impressive of Asmussen's runners. But uh, he was awesome. And I really, really loved being around him. All right. There's a, another boutique sale at Cheltenham this week. Uh, the Cheltenham February sale with Tattersalls, of course, in association with Jockey Club Racecourses. And takes place Thursday, 23rd. Uh, from 1 p.m., the sale ring at Cheltenham Racecourse. Tattersalls this season have produced Shishkin, Brave Man's Game, Hermes Allen, Jerry Colomb, and Tamuris, all of whom are well fancied for the Cheltenham Festival. And it gives me a great excuse to talk to Colin Bow, the 10 times champion Irish point-to-point handler, 17 winners so far this season, uh, and current leading handler as well. And he's on course to retain his title. He's a renowned point-to-point trainer. He's produced horses like Envoy Allen, Fernie Hollow, Brandy Love, all of whom have been sold at the Tats Cheltenham February sale. And of course, as you were hearing yesterday, Brandy Love is now in the ownership of Joe and Murray Donnelly, having been purchased from uh, Mike Grech. Uh, Colin, first of all, I've got to ask you about the growth of the point-to-point sales within the, within the national hunt sector and, and how really it's changed your way of life over the, last, over the last few years, how it's changed the way you do things and how you operate. Oh, Nicholas, it's a massive industry now, Nick. It's, 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 gone, it's gone huge. Um, I'm here, I probably have maybe 80 to 90 horses in training here. And within, within uh, say, a 10-mile radius of me, there's probably four to 500 more maybe point-to-pointers all for sale. All lads just going up buying top stores, bringing them home, training them, getting to those, hopefully trying to get to those boutique sales. So it's definitely a big, big business, yeah. And if, if I'd said that to you, say, 10, 12, 15 years ago, look, you're going to have 90 horses for sale at any one time, would you have thought that was a, a possibility? Um, definitely not. No, it just it, no, no. Well, my own story personally, it just kind of grew legs. But definitely, I started off here maybe with ten or fifteen, maybe less, maybe nine or ten horses starting off. I just seemed to get bigger and bigger every year. When, but the horses got more valuable, and I know they're expensive to buy. But if you're lucky enough to cross the line with a nice horse with a good pedigree, you get well paid. So, um, when there's money, I suppose things just grow, don't they? And I just reeled off a list of absolute superstars that have been through your hands. Has there been a real kind of eureka moment for you? Was there a moment where you thought, well, th- this is this is working well, system working, just keep getting bigger? Um, yeah, well, we've been looking, we've been looking trying foils here. The gallop I have, it, it, it seems to suit, suits foils. So we from maybe from freaking flag fall we, we, we dig it on well with the foils and trading those so that's just buying the trios and training the foils it definitely has worked so um, yeah no that goes well we, we it definitely it definitely got bigger every year but that's just what works well, works well here for us and of the horses that I mentioned which one would you say sort of 
really knocked your eye out to begin with and sort of flashed incredible talent. You sort of look at them as a, even as a, a three-year-old and think, wow, I've got something to work with here. You just get that, that feeling of, of huge excitement. Yeah, Envoy Adam was very obvious. He was a big monster of a horse, a good walk, super attitude, a bit of presence. And the first time we bought him into the ring to give him a few jumps, he was just good. He was super. He he he, he did all the right things very, very early. We knew, we knew fairly early in Canada that he was a nice horse. Uh, do the really talented ones show it off straight away? Um, Brandy Love didn't. Did she not? Uh, no, funny story, Rob James actually owned her with me. Rob was going somewhere else to ride, and he said to, he said to Barry O'Neill, he said, you should ride at Mare Sunday. I said, I don't know, she shouldn't show an awful lot. Rob said, I'll give her a gallop on grass. He said, I, that mare will win for you. So she wouldn't show much at home at, earlier on, but she was, she was a very talented, very talented lady. Now, but she, she didn't show much starting off, no, she didn't. So on to, on to this week, and you've got five beautiful looking lots in terms of of pedigree and uh, and performance which are you are you looking forward to most um the two they're all different obviously the foils are the foils are worth more money but and uh, uh, the don't get all horse joey wallen's a very nice horse and the horse the kingston hill horse he's a very well-bred horse he costs 70 grand as a foil he's our princess leia and um, two different horses what uh the don't get all horse to be a Big seventeen, big raw horse, but the other horse, the other horse, be more furnished. Um, foils tend to make more money, but the two five-year-olds I have in actually weren't in training me last year. So the reason, the, re- the reason of five is that they actually weren't in work last year. One was coming to be trained, and the other fellow was bought unbroken as a four-year-old. Um, they're smart horses, but four-year-olds tend to make more money. And you've got a mare in here as well. Um, have you found the trade for mares has been better in recent years, thanks to the strength of the the mares program? Anna Lecker, and she's a she's a six year old. Yeah, she's a six year old. Um, she, she again, she came into train. She only came into return as a five year old. Um, her video, her, her her the video will look well. She she been on her head and gabbed well, but she won't be a big money mare because her, her she's not a very very good mover. But her heart is the right place and she will race, but she won't be a very big money mare. No, she won't be. But I guess that's the beauty of it. There might be a little bit of something for, for everybody because not everyone's got, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand to spend. Nick, exactly. Uh, I see the horse that won yesterday with David Piper on me, the horse called Thomas Moore. Mm. We, uh, he, took, he took five runs here with us to, to, win a ra- to win a race and I think he's after winning his last four. And uh, Tommy's asking was all private to Ian Hamilton for something like 30 grand. He won a great two or lesser. It's great that you can go to sales and buy a bit of value without spending without spending loads of money. Um, there's plenty of horses that will win races that, that don't cost a fortune. And, plenty of them. And I guess for you, you mentioned Ian Hamilton there, David Piper. You, you need that spread of clients as well, don't you? You you want to be selling to loads of different people. Yeah, absolutely. In uh, actually, it was COVID, and Ian Hamilton brought. He bought paid the piper off me, and Tommy's asking. I think the two were thirty-five grand a piece, and they ended up two two large black type horses. So, um, it's great that it's and they don't have to win first to to be a good horse. In Ireland, it's, it's very, very, very competitive over here. Those two horses in particular had four to five runs, and I think they've, I think those two horses could have won maybe ten races between them. They don't have to win first them out here. They can build on a run. Any horse that gets that gets placed over here in those younger maidens. Will definitely have a future, a future as a racehorse to win races. 
All right, Colin, great to talk to you. Good luck this week. Thanks very much. I thought you said you weren't any good at this. All right, news today that Goodwood Racecourse have announced a prize money increase for 2023. It's record prize money of £8 million, joined by Goodwood's clerk, Ed Arkell, now. Ed, I've been asking many racecourse executives the same thing when they announce prize money increases against the economic backdrop and against the backdrop of the concerns in the sport. How are you managing to, to increase prize money? Uh, it's great, great news, isn't it? I mean, I think where we're very lucky is um, the three whirlpool days that we have at Goodwood. Um, you know, we've got the three confirmed this year, um, and that they make a huge difference and allow us to invest in the in the sports and the prize money. How much? How much can you realistically expect? For the racecourse from each whirlpool day, this is the global pari mutual, of course. We heard from uh, from Alex Ross the other day that we could be getting more and more whirlpool days in, in years to come. Yeah, it obviously depends on the number of races you run on a day and the amount of runners and the turnover. Um, but the fact that you know we're able to put in another well, a prize money will be up by about eight hundred thousand on last year. It gives a bit of an indication of the levels we're talking about. What areas are you prioritising? If you're putting this much more money into the into the sport at Goodwood, which areas are you prioritising? Um, so there won't be any two-year-old races at Goodwood worth less than 15,000 next year. Um, obviously, we've supported the main meeting um, because of the importance of ensuring we get those full fields, plenty of runners. That drives the whirlpool um, income, which obviously comes back into the sport and into the prize money. Um, all our listed races will be up at 60,000 this season or at least 60,000. So, you know, there have been, been increases right across the board. Ed Arkell there, the clerk of the course at Goodwood. Thanks to him, thanks to Kate Hunter, Peter Fahey, Colin Bow, and of course uh, to Richard Hoyles particularly for his thoughts at the beginning of the programme. I'm sure that is a story that is just going to run and run for the moment. From Riyadh, that was Wednesday, February the 22nd. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.